Hey, it's Mark. This week, it's my great privilege to speak with one of the most decorated American athletes of all time, and perhaps just as importantly, one of this country's most avid mental health advocates. Allison Schmidt, who is this year's MMNM Platinum Award winner for Outstanding Contribution to Healthcare, is a four-time Olympian and a 10-time Olympic medalist. A veteran leader, she was named captain of the 2020 USA Swimming Team in Tokyo, a role she also held for the 2016 Rio Games. But many may not realize the extent of her advocacy work outside of the pool on behalf of the mental health community. My colleague Lesha Bushak will also bring you her much-anticipated policy update. Lesha, what you got for us this week? Hi, Mark. Glad to be here again. To piggyback on your segment with Allison, I'll discuss a few mental health updates. First, that the CDC released new data showing that the suicide rate rose in 2021 and that the Biden administration announced some $300 million in funding for mental health services in schools. And for my segment, I'll talk with Allison Schmidt about what motivated her to speak out about her personal struggles with depression and what drives her passion for raising awareness and helping those who are battling mental health issues. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Allison, hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Again, it's uh, my great privilege. So many in our audience may have seen the PSAs you've done for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or even be aware of your collaboration uh, with your surrogate brother, Michael Phelps, and the advisory work you've done for his high-profile nonprofit, the Michael Phelps Foundation. But I'd like to explore what's behind that, uh, because someone who struggles with a problem, in this case depression, and then looks to leverage that experience to help others is a very special person indeed. Allison, do you want to tell us about how the advocacy work you've done grew out of your own experiences? Thank you. Um, yeah, so, I mean, to me, as hard of a topic as mental health is, I'm so passionate about it. And I believe that the best way to destigmatize the negativity around mental health is to speak about it. So I've actually had unfortunate events in my personal life, uh, my cousin committed suicide a week after her 17th birthday. Um, and at the same time, I was also experiencing a downward spiral on my own and experiencing depression, but not acknowledging that I was in a mental health crisis. So I, at that point when my cousin lost her life to suicide is when I first reached out for help. And in that time, I realized how prevalent it is to everyone in this world. And being someone who competes at an international level and is watched on TV, um, sometimes viewers think that everyone on TV is superhuman and has this glorious life. But I speak out about my own struggles to allow them to understand that you can Everyone else um, has goals and you can accomplish those goals, even with mental health issues and problems. So it is okay to ask for help and it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to have that downward spiral and try and isolate yourself from everyone else. 
Right. Thank you. Yes. And um, in, in the immediate aftermath, as your family dealt with the unfathomable grief of losing April, uh, April Boshin, your cousin, you made a decision to, to no longer be silent. Uh, and that has turned out to be a life-changing decision for you. Uh, so you became an advocate to share your own struggles publicly. And, and one of the other outgrowths was that your aunt, Amy Boshin, April's mother, founded the April D. Boshin Memorial Foundation, which gives scholarships to high school seniors and also raises awareness about mental health issues um, uh, among students. And as, as you began opening up about your depression publicly, uh, I think in 2015, what was the hardest part of, of becoming an advocate for those bent, battling mental illness? I think the hardest part about becoming an advocate is having those emotions while advocating. And I think there's many times when I speak about it and I have those emotions come back up and I get emotional while speaking about it. I get emotional while talking about it, while on camera. And I'm so used to being embarrassed about those emotions that it's hard to show the world those emotions. So the hardest part was definitely learning to accept those emotions and understand that every human being goes to those emotions. So it is okay to show those emotions on a worldwide level. Absolutely. I mean, you said people think that, you know, an, an athlete who competes at your level and, and has the kind of success that you have is superhuman, but I think you're just as superhuman, you know, for showing your emotions and, and being comfortable in this new role. Um, what, what kind of feedback did you get and, and what are you most proud of, you know, of, of this, the, this new you know, turn that you took in, in 2015? Um, I mean, you make me smile when you ask that question. It's, I think, just connecting. As human beings, we love connection. And you can be whatever race, whatever gender, whatever age and everybody can connect with mental health at some aspect. And so when I speak about it, and there's kids that come up to me, adults that come up to me, and express their story and share their story, open up about their story, it makes my heart grow that someone else is impacted by my story and April's story, and is able to create their own story and create their own journey of asking for help. That's beautiful. Um, as one reads April's story, it's hard not to say, wow, you know, she had so much going for her. And, you know, so that notion of all looks great on the outside and that can mask what's happening inside. Um, uh, but one of the other perhaps misconceptions people may have about mental illness is that it's situational when actually it's something that many of us struggle with on an ongoing basis, whether they care to admit it or not, including a number of people in our own medical marketing industry. What would you like them to know? That it can affect anybody at any time. Um, like you said, it's an invisible disease and it's not necessarily something that we can see from the outside, which makes it harder to acknowledge and harder to point out on someone else, um, ask them if they're okay. For me, I recently just got surgery. It's my first surgery I've ever had, a hip surgery. So I'm wearing a brace, wearing crutches, and it's walking by, people ask me about it. Um, oh, what happened? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Oh, you're able to walk again? And that's a physical injury that you're able to see uh, and people aren't judging. So for 
The invisible disease, I think the biggest thing is to have an open mind and to be non-judgmental. Non-judgmental to hearing someone else's story and non-judgmental to your own story and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and share that story and reach a handout to get the help that's necessary. Yeah, we're, we're very hard on ourselves, aren't we? So that, that's an important thing, too, is to just not, not beat ourselves up. That's great advice, I think. Uh, I'd like to just switch gears for a moment and, and talk a little bit about it. I don't think a lot of people in our audience necessarily appreciate the rigors of Olympic training and, and the uniqueness of the Olympic cycle. You know, you talked about what you felt like in early 2015 after, you know, coming off of London 2012 where you, you won gold in the 200-meter freestyle, one of five medals, to add to your bronze in Beijing four years before, and that you felt so drained. And, you know, the perfectionism, the work ethic that drives elite athletes to, to great heights can also leave them feeling kind of let down after a peak event. What, what does that feel like? Oh, um, I'm not exactly sure what to compare the feeling to. Uh, it, I mean, you're an absolute high. It's You've worked your whole life. And at that point in 2012, I'm 22 years old. And I th I have had a lot of questions that ask, oh, so when did you start training for the Olympics? Um, it's not like you wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to train for the Olympics today. It's a lifelong process. And Every day you go to practice, every day you're fueling your body properly, you're getting the proper sleep, everything's geared towards the goal of succeeding in that specific sport. And so when you hit that goal, you're not prepared for what's next. You're not prepared for the world knowing your name, uh, walking down the street and hearing people whisper, there's Alison Schmidt, there's the Olympic gold medalist. Um, I wasn't prepared for that. And so I'm not exactly sure what to compare the ultimate high of your sport to, to the coming back down and feeling that low. But I think the biggest thing to realize is even when you are watching TV, whether you're watching movie stars, athletes, uh, whatever, whoever you're watching, that they are human and they go through ups and downs just like every viewer out there. And it's not the glorious life that you see on TV. It's not the gold medals and the winning um, that they show on TV. That's part of it. But the whole story are the tears behind the training, the 5 a.m. workouts, the not going to family events or prom or graduations and skipping those um, to go to practice. And so there's a lot of work that goes into those gold medals that isn't necessarily shown on TV and not known by the viewers who are only seeing the cheers in the gold medals. Yeah. It's, uh, you just took all the romanticism out of it. Uh, did, did anyone prepare you, did anyone prepare you for those post Olympic blues, you know, or what it was like to go back to quote unquote normal life, uh, between Olympics? Um, well, it's, I, it is glorious. <laughs> it is a great time. Um, but I was not prepared. And I think that's something that <clears throat> as an organization, uh, the USOPC has to prepare us for. And that's 
I think it's absolutely wonderful. And I believe that every athlete's story that is coming out and telling their story is helping move that needle, uh, move the needle of having a negative uh, connotation on mental health to a more positive um, outlook on mental health. Stories can only go so far, though, and we need change. I wish that personally I knew the answer to what that change looked like. Um, I've actually am going back to school so that I can make that step for change. But ultimately, we need organizations to step up and make that change. Um, I know with a lot of athletes speaking out, uh, sports organizations are saying that they are giving help. But from my experience of finishing this past Olympics, I am going through that grieving process of coming down from a high and being out of the sport. It's not easy. And there was not support given to me that the media thinks is given to Olympic athletes. Yeah, let lest anyone think that you know our athletes are, are properly cared for in the mental health area, uh, they're not, and it's it's I imagine it's pretty hard to be 100% physically when you're not 100% you know cared for mentally. Um, do you think that there's a higher prevalence of, of mental health issues among athletes competing at your level? Um, so this is a tough question. It's a, there's a yes and a no. So there's a, a two part answer. I definitely say yes, because you're zeroed in on one goal. Being an elite athlete, like I said, you're determined, uh, resilient, stubborn, which are great qualities to succeed. And I feel like those qualities make us internally hard on ourselves, which we have pressure from media. We have pressure from fans. We have pressure from outside. I don't think that completely crushes an athlete, but that what crushes the athlete is the pressure that combined with the pressure they put on themselves. The second part of my answer of why I say it's not necessarily just being an elite athlete that puts you under the microscope of having a mental illness is because there's a lot of other elites out there that are not just athletes. And if you are a person that is going for one goal and don't have that balance because you, your only vision is to succeed in that one goal, yes, you will succeed in that one goal, but you also have to have that balance in order to fulfill the human needs of connection with other people, of asking for help, of truly being yourself and allowing other aspects to come into play rather than that one goal you're going for. Sure, sure. Um, you were one of the first athletes to speak out about this issue. Uh, now this country finally seems to be paying more attention. Um, the pandemic certainly brought uh, these issues to the forefront uh, in, in a greater way. Where do you think we still need to make progress in breaking the stigma of, of mental illness? I believe we need to have more resources and more 
more resources and less judgmental views on the topic. Um, less judgmental views come from allowing yourself to be vulnerable, but also allowing space for other people to be vulnerable without having the judgmental glasses on. Um, especially the younger generation. Um, people love to talk. Humans love to talk. Humans look for connection. And I believe that as we grow older and as we get more into our careers and there's more going on with life, we get stuck in the hustle and bustle of everyday life and forget to truly ask someone how they're doing. And I know that there's a lot of times people run by and instead of saying hi, you're just like, hey, how are you doing? They're not really caring how you're doing and they're keeping, they're still walking. Um, but if you're able to set aside two or three minutes of your time and truly ask someone and be invested in their answer of how they're doing speaks volumes and allows another human being to feel that connection and feel more like they're a human rather than a robot walking around with a smile on their face. Yeah. And that's something that we can all do and, and relate to certainly. Um, and I would imagine there needs to be more research on that uh, or attention paid to understanding that brain body connection. Um, as well, you know, on, on the, on any comments on that sort of on, on the, on where you'd like to see things go on, on the research front? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm actually in a research class right now and it's been very interesting to read journals and scholar articles on the topic. And it's what's more interesting to me is how there's more in the past 10 years, um, which actually helps a lot of my research in my classes <laughs> because it's more um, <laughs> it's more prevalent uh, to this everyday life. But truthfully, I just it's more of the resources now. People are coming out and admitting that they need help, but there are not opportunities to get help and if you're in a crisis situation um, and you call for a psychologist, there's times when you call and ask for an appointment. It's like, okay, we'll see you in three months. It's like, well, mm -hmm, I finally mm -hmm. just got the courage to ask for help and admit it to myself that I need help. I need help very quickly before this keeps going uh, in a downward, downward spiral. And so I think the biggest part is getting, having more opportunities and resources to help people that are coming out and asking for help. Sure. And, and your aunt Amy, uh, again, going back to that story, she, she talked about how hard it was, you know, to, to get a, uh, an appointment with a psychiatrist and, and the whole, you know, medication management was very difficult. Um, so yeah, it just underscores your point. Just curious, how, how do you deal with stress? Well, I'm always, I look at coping skills, um, as a toolbox and I'm always willing to put more tools in my toolbox 
I believe that's an evolving question that <laughs> I, again, wish I knew the answer to. But I currently, the tools in my toolbox currently are taking deep breaths, uh, removing myself from the situation, and giving myself incentives and motivations to do something I enjoy doing. I think those are the three biggest things is, I mean, I guess the biggest thing for me is taking those deep breaths. And when I take those deep breaths, it's almost like I set myself in a little bit of mindfulness and I put both feet on the ground. I'm touching a chair and I'm breathing deeply uh, in uh, and out through my nose. And I think that allows our system, our nervous system to level out and allows us to not get such a high or such a low. So that is my best tool right now. But like I said, I'm willing to learn about any other tools that could possibly help. Super. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of breathing, right? It's, uh, we have that within us to, to uh, sort of channel our stress. Um, as you mentioned, you're also earning a master's in social work out of a desire to help others who are struggling. Um, what would you like to do with that degree and, and what's next for, for your advocacy work? Yes, I'm earning a master's in social work. I will be finishing up this May. I have next semester, I have two more classes and I'll finish up my internship. I'm currently at a behavioral health hospital, so my first internship was at a university in counseling services for general population. Um, this year, I'm doing a psychiatric work along with equine therapy, and my goal is to get experience in different types of work, so I have that knowledge behind me um, when I work with athletes. And my end goal is to work with athletes. And I don't know quite yet what that looks like. But I think that's a huge needed space. Um, working with athletes, A, when they have failed, B, when they have had their success, and understanding those emotions and see uh, grieving when you do not hit your goal or when you're transitioning out of sport. That's That sounds like a wonderful way to continue your advocacy beyond the Olympics. So that's, that sounds great. Thank you. Yeah. And anyone dealing with a mental health issue can call the SAMHSA National Helpline 24-7, 365 days a year at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. Um, Allison, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you. I know our audience will love hearing more from you at the MMNM Awards. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's such an important topic and I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Last week, I discussed a new draft of legislation that would begin tackling the mental health care workforce shortage by boosting Medicaid coverage and providing incentives to psychiatrists and other providers in rural areas. And this week, there's a few different policy initiatives on the mental health front to keep an eye on. 
First, the CDC released new data showing the suicide rate rose by 4% in 2021 compared to the year prior. The largest increase happened in young men, particularly aged 15 to 24, which saw an 8% increase. And this is in line with what public health officials have been bringing attention to for the last year or so, that there's a national mental health crisis, particularly among young people. So as part of the Biden administration's efforts to address that, it announced some $300 million in mental health funding for schools that will come via two main grant programs. And those are now open for applications as of this week. And these grants are part of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act passed earlier this year. The first one will provide schools with $144 million a year for five years to boost the number of mental health professionals there. And the second one will help train school-based mental health professionals. It's all part of Biden's goal to double the amount of school-based mental health professionals. I think when we talk about workforce capacity, I think I think lay people kind of say, okay, you know, we need more psychiatrists. And, you know, we do need more. In, in many places, we do need more psychiatrists. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen some of the data about the number of counties across the country that have no child psychiatrists, for example. And it's, it's um, you know, that's a huge thing, a huge problem. But it's important to recognize that mental health care, behavioral health care is provided by a whole team of people. And you don't need psychiatrists to solve every problem. There's some emphasis in here on, on clinical social workers, for example. Um, and I think, you know, you, you just have to recognize that the workforce problems are across the board and it's 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 as big a problem with the direct service providers the case workers the case managers who are you know in a sort of hierarchical sense the low people on the totem pole but the people who touch more clients than anybody else in the public system that that's really where the need is just as great as it is for the you know the more credentialed people like psychiatrists That's mental health advocate and policy analyst Bill Emmett, who previously served as director at the Campaign for Mental Health Reform. There's also another mental health bill I wanted to briefly touch upon that saw some movement last week. The Mental Health Matters Act passed the House last week, and it would aim to improve something called mental health parity, which basically means making sure mental health conditions are covered equally in insurance plans to physical conditions. So this particular bill would allow the Labor Department to place financial penalties on administrators of group health plans if they don't fulfill those parity requirements. But this bill is a bit controversial. Some Republicans and industry groups oppose it because of those penalties. Um, They're arguing that it would prompt plans to drop mental health coverage entirely. So we'll see what happens when it moves to the Senate. And, you know, we've been hearing more and more that mental health is beginning to surpass even COVID in terms of priority on the policy level. So these grants and pieces of legislation will be important to watch moving forward. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.